enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation is storm brewing. Amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is presented by Mercury Mile. Have you not checked out Mercury Mile yet? If you haven't, what are you waiting for? You get the best high-quality running goods out there. You get them shipped to your home without ever leaving your home. You keep what you love. You send back what you don't. I got a uh, two pairs of running shorts in my last box. Um, one was Asics and one was New Balance, and they were both fantastic. And that was the best part. They got sent right to me. There was one thing in the box that I didn't want. There was a high quality product, but you know what? I just had, I had enough socks. I didn't need any more socks. So what did I do? I popped it right back into the package, put it in my mailbox. See you later. I paid for what I loved. I sent back what I didn't. And you can save even more by using code RAMBLINGRUNNER10 at checkout. Go to mercurymile.com today. So today's episode is with Tanya Carrier. Tanya is a, a, a well-established, very experienced runner who has run, I think she's on marathon number 15 coming up this year. She just started her training cycle for that. She's done 39, yes, 39 half marathons. She just turned 40, so she has a ton of racing experience. And we talked a lot about what she's been able to do and how she's been able to do it. And as entertaining and informative as that part of the conversation was, you're going to want to stick around for the end. Because by the end, we talk about why. We talk about why she does the things she does. She is also an elementary school teacher. And we touch on uh, some of her, her childhood and her background. And let me just say, you're not going to want to miss it. So I hope you love this episode with Tanya Carrier. Hello, Tanya, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And you are one of the one of the guests that I actually have met in person before having you on the show. Yes, briefly on the street. <laughs> briefly on the street. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So we don't live anywhere near each other, but we were both at CIM um, last year. And I said this on another recent show that you were the first person I saw in town that I actually recognized. We we're both crossing the street right in front of the uh, convention center. And you're, I hear a Matt, and I'm like, wait, what's going on? And then I see you, and I recognize you immediately. I know, and I'm really terrible with like facial recognition. I don't know why I just don't remember faces, but I saw you, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's Matt Chittum. That's Matt Chittum right there. <laughs> no, I, I remember this vividly because you were so excited about that whole weekend. Uh, you were just you were just overflowing with energy. Did you know, obviously we can touch on this in a little bit in terms of how well you did, but did you know going into that weekend and, and that marathon, and again, you've run a number of marathons. Uh, we'll get into that as well. Did, but did you have any idea that that was going to be a successful weekend for you? I, I really did. I was feeling pretty confident. I was completely trained and prepared. And I um, just love that race. And I love the atmosphere with everybody. And so I was really excited. Yeah, and it was funny, because it was one of those races where, again, I, I know I've said this on other shows, but it seemed like, especially at the expo, that so many people knew each other, which was remarkable considering that people had come from all over for that race. I've been to a lot of races just locally in Rhode Island where I knew less people than when I went to CIM. <laughs> it's true. I felt like a celebrity. I was with my um, teammate and he doesn't have social media. And it was like every second, it was like, Tanya, wait, are you track Tanya run? Tanya? And, I, and he was like, who are you? And I was like, I feel like a celebrity here. I love it. I just love that whole environment. And I love Instagram and how that little square world can bring people together in real life. So I was already pretty high. I was leaving the expo when I saw you. So I was like, oh my gosh, just so happy. Well, you're such a supportive person. You've always been supportive of me and other people as well. So I can see why that would certainly resonate. And also, and you know, you've wrote about this in the past too, that you were really trained for that race and you ran a wonderful time. You ended up clocking a 311, which was a PR. And yet, you, it seemed like you had this part of you that wasn't, you know, while a PR is wonderful, that you felt like you left a little bit on the table that race. 
Yes. You know, I, I started that race um, and I knew I wanted to negative split. So I went out pretty conservative. Um, and so I did, I actually was ready to pick it up at mile 20. Uh, and once I hit 20, I started to go a little bit faster and my quads were like, oh no, you're not. <laughs> and so I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to pick it up any more than I am. But I knew I was on a PR pace. So I just kind of just went in and um, I think I just need to do a little more work on my quads and strengthening. And uh, so I can, you know, finish that race the way, finish the race that like I want to. So your quads were, were hurting you at the end. What about, what about that? particular moment that you know had you feeling good besides the quads like, like you said like if your quads are bothering you obviously it's hard to say that you left some on the table so what about what was going on with you in that last 10k that had you feeling like you had more in the tank well when I hit mile two I happened to run into uh this guy named Sam and he followed me on Instagram and he was looking at me and he was like wait are you Tanya and I was like yes and I remember he was coming to the race and he was looking to PR as well and we just were in sync the entire way until 20. It was just rolling hills. People think CIM is a downhill course, but it's really a rolling course the whole way. And so we just were neck and neck the whole time, kind of talking a little bit and encouraging each other. And when we got to 20, he took off and I went to go with him and he just, he did a 308 that day and I couldn't hang. And I just felt my quads getting tighter. And I, I, it always happens to me late in the race. Um, every race I do, it's like my quads just start to hurt and I'm always afraid I'm going to pull them. So I kind of just ease back a little bit just to know that I can finish. So that really is what happened. And I actually ran the most perfect split race like it was a exactly 720 pace the entire way <laughs> well that's remarkable and and it's funny how you mentioned how you know, your quads are always that bugaboo at mm. the end of a race i know a lot of people feel that way one of the guys that i coach has the same thing uh with this uh you know with, with a kind of like an inner quad issue as well where it's like mile 18 to 20 he feels it every marathon so you've run a number of marathons you you're, what you just had your 39th half marathon you're going to run St. George this year. This is going to be your 15th full marathon. So what do you do, you know, to try to build up some of those weaknesses while also still trying to capitalize on some of your strengths? Well, I've been running since I was 13 years old, and this is the first time I've ever actually incorporated the strength. I mean, I've always lifted weights a little bit here and there, like in high school and in college, we went to the gym, but you know how that is when you're young. I just am totally focused right now with my coach and I am um, doing exercises uh, that I never even knew. Like there were muscles there because today I literally, I'm hurting just sitting here talking to you. My whole body is aching because I had my first session yesterday with him. And I'm really excited to see with all this core training and strength training, just little muscles in my lower legs, my quads, my glutes to see building those how much better I'll be late in the race so what was your hesitancy in the past about doing you know really dedicating yourself to this kind of work I don't think I ever had any hesitation I think I just didn't have the knowledge of it and also the time you know I'm a mom of two little children and a teacher and um, I just am, I don't want to spread myself too thin, but I would rather go and run the mileage than spend my um, time in the gym. And that's just how it was. I haven't had a gym membership for 15 years. I just joined. <laughs> yeah, that's always the calculus that, that so many busy people are trying to do when they're trying to figure out exactly how much to work out. You know, and, and, and how much not only to work out, but you know, whatever endeavor they're trying to, to pursue is that you want to make sure that you're being as like efficient with your time as possible. And was, was, was CIM kind of for you, like the, the shifting point of like, Hey, maybe, maybe running more mileage is more mileage. Isn't the answer. Maybe I have to incorporate this other stuff too, and maybe decrease the mileage since you can't just increase everything all the time. Yeah, it actually was probably maybe four marathons ago that I realized that I don't need to run as much mileage um, as I used to. I always thought the more mileage, the faster I 
I am. And that was true for a long time. Like I've always been a distance runner and I feel like I get strength with more mileage, but about four marathons ago. So probably CIM, um, in 2016 was when I started to really, um, work with my coach and, um, realize I didn't have to do as much. So I really started to learn more about recovery and taking those, you know, recovery days really slow. I mean, I'll run like 10 minute miles on my recovery days now and I love it and I do feel a difference. So yeah, I mean, I'm, when I'm in marathon training, I, my peak week is, I keep trying to say, I want to get to 70. I want to get to 70, but we're always just shy of 70. So, um, I'm not a crazy mileage, high mileage runner anymore. So what were you doing say five years ago in terms of mileage? Um, the same, probably the same. I think my most ever was 72 to 75 miles, um, in a week. And that was when I, I mean, gosh, that's when I was, I ran St. George in 2005. I was running that high, high mileage, um, consistently. So it wasn't like just one week of it. It was multiple weeks of it. And that's when I ran my PR of 314. That was my third marathon. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So that's when I thought, like, the more mileage, the better for me. And I kept kind of on that trend for a while until I, you know, I had a major burnout, major, major marathon burnout. And I quit running uh, marathons in 2008. Uh, I ran San Diego Rock and Roll in 2008. And I ended up running a 342. And I, it was all, I just felt awful. My he- Mentally, I wasn't there. And I was just like, I am so done. I keep trying to PR and I just keep getting worse. So I did. I took a hiatus from marathon running. I continued to do the half. It's my favorite distance. But um, it wasn't until the bombing happened in Boston that I got that desire to go back. So I, uh, yeah, I ran Chicago Marathon in 2013 and I ran a 337 and I just qualified um, for Boston again. And, and that's what started it. And I haven't stopped since now. So let's go in, let's go back in time a little bit to that period where you kept trying to get faster, but ironically kept getting slower mm-hmm. in terms of your, in terms of your, uh, your races. You know, I think oftentimes it, we think about, you know, if we just work harder, then we're going to get better results. And as you mentioned, there are plenty of times where that's the case. So what about that period of time, you know, in terms of what you were doing as a runner led you towards burnout as opposed to, you know, continuing to see improvements? I'm not, I'm not really sure I can pinpoint exactly what it was. I just felt like I was doing, you know, two marathons a year, Um, I wasn't really running. I was running alone. I didn't really have a team. So I just was bored. And I just lost my desire to go that far. I mean, running those long runs by yourself. And I just really didn't have my heart into the longer distances. And that can be so, it's funny. It's it's like, it's amazing because you would never think that you know, having a social outlet would have an effect on athletic performance because it's almost like your body's doing what it's doing. Like, how does other people have any relation to that? It's not like you're drafting off of them. But it's so often we see this this correlation between people who run in groups or people who have a social outlet in regards to their hobbies then end up having a more successful tenure in that hobby. And when you so so when you got back into it, how did you sort of remedy that? that situation in terms of making sure that you didn't fall into some of the same traps that you had the first time? Well, at this time when I started, I um, found my coach and starting with a coach kind of guiding you and um, holding you accountable and setting your schedule for you. It was a lot easier and I wasn't getting burnt out. Um, I was running with people and friends uh, so I think that kind of helped me. And I, I was so excited to go back to Boston. So, um, cause I had run it once before. And so I was excited just to, that was enough to get me going and motivated to run again. And when you ran <laughs> that 337 in Chicago, so that was slower than you ran when you gave up marathoning, right? So you ran like high 220s, high 320s, and then gave up. He's like, all right, that's it. I'm done, I'm done with you, marathon. <laughs> and then when you came back, you obviously ran slower than you had 
when you, that precipitated you leaving the leaving the marathon. But what about that time didn't have the negative effect that the preceding marathon had? <laughs> well, it was in 2013 and I had had a baby. I had my son in 2011. So it was really great to run and get back into shape and lose baby weight and just feel strong again. And I feel like I had him as my motivation too. Like I want to be a strong mom for him. Um, and then, yeah, the 337, I just knew it had been so long since I've raced a marathon distance. So it was like my first marathon again. That's how I went into it. Like, let me just see where I'm at. So I did, I ran that 337 and I had already the registration for Boston had already closed. So I knew I wasn't going back in 2014. So I put this whole plan in place because I'm a planner. So I said, okay, I want to have another baby. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going to get pregnant now after this race and I'm going to have a baby and then I'm going to train for Boston and I'm going to lose all the weight and I'm going to train for Boston 2015. And that's exactly what I did. I had my daughter Kendall in August of 2014. I mean, I got pregnant the next month. Like (laughs) I was like, boom. She's a wheeze, Tanya. (laughs) You know, it's like, I'm sure there are probably plenty of mothers out there or parents out there who are listening to this, just cringing, like, Oh my God, it took us two years to get pregnant. You're like, you like put it on the daily planner and like got it done. I got the science down. I surely did. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, but yeah, so I, we, I did, I, I, I had her in August and, um, it was a really difficult pregnancy. I, um, I guess my cervix was a little thinner than the doctor had, uh, liked. So he put me on bed rest. Um, I was 19 weeks pregnant and he put me on bed rest for the rest of my, my term. So wow. it was almost six months of bed rest where I couldn't run. I couldn't do anything. And ooh, if anyone knows me, my personality, I can't sit still. I have a lot of energy. I have ADHD and it was the most depressing time of my life. I had my little two-year-old boy like, mommy, get off the couch, come and play with me. And it was so hard. My husband was my rock through the whole thing and he took care of everything. And, and yeah, I mean, I had a healthy baby. I mean, they let me off the bed at 37 weeks because they're like at this or 30, yeah, 37 weeks at this point, everything should be fine if, if you deliver her. So I did. And that little stinker, she's so stubborn. She stayed in till 39, five, 39 weeks, five days. I was like, just get out. (laughs) So you went from bed rest to like possibly inducing. Yes. Yeah. I actually had an induction date for um, my 40th week and uh, she came uh, a few days before. So I was so happy, but so yeah, I had her. And then of course laying on my back for so long and uh, my body was just mush and I was weak. But um, as soon as I was given the go ahead, I got back into um, yoga and Pilates and started building myself back up. And eight months later, I towed the line at Boston and I ran a eight minute flat three thirty. Uh, race and it was pouring rain in 2015 and it was the best day ever. It was just so great. Everything that I planned had come true. So it was a seven minute PR from the previous marathon and um, eight months postpartum. So I was pretty happy. Wow. So six months of literally not doing anything and then having this eight month ramp up. So that, that I mean, first of all, that's incredible to, to, to kind of go from those extremes. What about yoga and Pilates? Because this is not something we talk about very often here on the show. What about yoga and Pilates helped build you back up um, considering, I mean, like you said, like your body was mush. I mean, if you don't move for six months, I don't care who you are, like that's going to happen. And, you know, that that's, it certainly is a remarkable turnaround. So what about yoga and Pilates had an effect on you? When I say yoga and Pilates, I really mean Pilates because yoga is so boring for me. It's too slow for my energy level. So I would do a yoga class once in a while to get that stretching. But basically it was Pilates and I'd go three or four times a week and um, just using your own body. Like there were, I didn't use any weights or anything. It was just using your own body weight and um, the positions It just really builds your strength. So I love Pilates and I would do the hot Pilates. So you're literally dripping and sweating in the hundred degree room. 
Um, so yeah, it got me back in shape really fast. So do you still do it? Um, I actually, I'm not doing it now because I joined the gym. Like I said, I, I really have to figure out where I want my time to be spent. So I haven't done it in a couple months. Um, so yeah, no, I'm not really, I can do a little bit on my own. I, I have some of the moves that I've learned and I can do at my house, but my gosh, my coach has me on such a regimen that I literally like get my kids to bed by eight 30 and I'm laying on the floor. I can't even like lay on the couch. I'm laying on the floor with my bands, my stretch bands, and I'm doing all these fire hydrants and like let all these things. My husband's just like, Oh my gosh, when are you going to be done? And I'm like, I'm doing this. And so, and the other day he goes, I'm going to start joining you. So having him as a partner to do it with me would be really cool. Um, yeah, I met my husband um, uh, in Las Vegas. He's from Boston and I'm from New York. So we were both East Coast people and we met here at a triathlon actually. And so the first year we were together, we did nine triathlons together. And then I, I learned that he was only doing triathlons in training because he had gained weight and he was using this to like get into shape so that he could find his girl and he found me <laughs> and then he never did another triathlon again. It's just so funny. <laughs> oh, that is hysterical. He's a golfer. Oh he loves golf. Like I love running. So we have our passion. I feel like everyone should find something they're passionate about because it's healthy for your relationship. But, um, so yeah, he's a golfer and, and really big in basketball, but he is not uh, the runner that I met on the near the bike rack. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So when you were doing the, the Pilates um, actively within your training, how were you segmenting your week around that? Like, did you try to make sure that you had a certain distance from like a hard workout day uh, with your Pilates or did it not matter? No, it didn't matter. It would just be um, where I would go run in the morning and then I would try to hit up a class like a 3.30. When it was at a 3.30 time, I could go right after work before I picked up my kids from their preschool or daycare. So it was like a perfect time. Like it was just a nice transition from after work, do that, go get the kids, go home and finish my mom routines. But then when my son was older and now he goes to school with me, he's, he attends the school I teach at. So it's harder because he's with me now all the time. So, um, he, I, that's really one of the reasons why I stopped the studio I was going to is because there's nowhere I can't, I don't have anyone to watch him. So I couldn't get there as much. So I joined a gym where there's a kid's playland and I can put them in the little play area while I'm working out. So that's kind of how I transitioned from my Pilates to um, the gym and more strength training and things like that. So when I see someone as high energy as you are, and I'm sure anyone who's listening to this episode knows exactly what I'm talking about because it's like completely emanating off of you. Mm -hmm. So when I see someone with this energy level, it's funny that you brought up triathlon because that's, that's the first thing I think about is like, you know, they, any triathlete has to have that kind of energy level just because of the demands needed to succeed in the sport. So I guess, how did you get started in triathlon and what stopped you from continuing to pursue it? Okay. Well, uh, my first triathlon was in 2006 <laughs> and it was just a sprint. And, um, I did them all the way 2006, 2007, all the way to 2010. I ended my, um, triathlon time with an, um, silver man, half iron man, um, in 2009, right before I was getting married, I was training for the half Ironman. And it, literally, it was the best racing experience of my entire life. It beats Boston. It beats anything else I've ever done. It was so incredible. I am not the best swimmer. Uh, I can swim to save my own life. Unless there's lots of waves, I'll probably die. But I can swim to save my own life. Um, I'm not anything great. I probably have the worst form. Um, but I knew I could swim enough to, to get through the water in a sprint. It's pretty short. So I did swim a lot with a team um, to get ready for the half Ironman. Um, I can jump on my bicycle like any time. And I'm pretty decent at it. I don't know. Um, 
in regards to anyone else, but I'm pretty decent. So then I knew like triathlons, like are for swimmers and cyclists, not runners. Like, it seems like no one loves the run in a triathlon. And I'm like, but I love the run. So if I can just keep my legs within me, I'm going to just pass everybody on the run when I get off that bike. So that's basically how I did all my, my triathlons. And when I was in the Silverman half Ironman, it was in my hometown right here in Vegas. It is so grueling. It, it you, you have to cycle up these, they call them the three sisters. They're gigantic. They're just humongous hills and they're early on in the, in the bike. So you need to get up and over those. And then your legs are just spanked for the rest of the way. But it was so amazing because I had all my students out there supporting me. They had go Miss French. You know, my maiden name is French. So go Miss French. And I had their parents out there supporting me and I had all my friends and my family and to be cycling near all these people and running you know, in the circles around all the people that love you. It was just so incredible. And I finished that race. I ran a six, I did a 618. And that was with a two hour half marathon. I was kind of injured with the running. I wasn't my best running in my best running shape at that point. So I did, I finished with a 618. And I, I don't, I mean, I know that doesn't sound like a great time depends on the course, but it was the best time of my life. And I don't know why I quit doing triathlons after that. I, it's like, I hung up my bike and I got married and then I had Brady and then I had Kendall. And I, once I had the kids, it's hard enough to run and find time to run where I don't take away from them the time that I could be spending with my family. So I just literally haven't found the time to do the three disciplines in a triathlon. Right. But it seems like once, if, if, if it gets to the point with their family life is able to stabilize a little bit and so you get a little bit more time, it seems like something that you would be able to really do well in just considering this energy level you have is like nonstop. <laughs> but the, the, the other thing that plays a part in here though, is also the teaching because Shoot, man, teaching is like, that's a draining job. I mean, like, my wife is a teacher. Uh, I know I've said that on previous episodes, mm-hmm. but it's true. And, like, shoot, if you're like, if you if you're two, ki- two kids or three kids, say you're a parent, you're two or three kids, where are you out? Imagine having 25 of those little suckers running around because that's what you have to deal with. So how do you, you know, how do you balance just the energy that you, t- that you have to use during the day with the energy that you want to use from a training perspective? <laughs> I don't think I ever run out of energy. I don't know what it is. I have so much energy. I was saying like, I literally am high every day and I've never taken a drug in my life. Like I just have such a natural high and it can be good and it can be, you know, harmful too. (laughs) But I, I don't know. I just think I set, I set my day up um, with a run, I get my run in. And as soon as I'm done running, I'm, I'm awake, I'm energized I go in, I get my coffee and I go into school and yeah, some of the teachers are like, watch out. Here comes Tanya. (laughs) Like I'm bustling down the hall, singing show tunes. And here I come and they're like, good morning. And I'm just a ball of energy, but you have to be when you teach first graders, they love it. And then, you know, I think I always have the energy. I feel like I don't have patience. I think that the students take away my patience. And sometimes it's detrimental to my family because I come home and I'm just completely spent. I have no patience left. And so when you have a a child the same age as what you're teaching, you know, my son's in first grade. Well, he's going into second now, but he was in first grade and I would be teaching the subjects all day. And then I'd be coming home and I'd be doing homework. And it's like, you're all it's like you're doing your job 24 7 like your literal job and it's like oh my gosh it's like a massage therapist going to work and then coming home and having to massage their whole family (laughs) before they go to bed it's it's hard and I do I feel like I want to be teacher of the year and I want to be mom of the year but there's no way you can be both so you have to kind of cut it back a little bit and and you know spread yourself out 
Yeah, that's a great point. We had the same thing going on in our house because my wife teaches second and third grade uh, inclusion and yes. my daughter's in first grade. So we have the same sort of thing <laughs> happening. Yeah, I think I felt like I had like a big case of deja vu there. <laughs> yeah, you totally are picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> oh, no, for sure. For sure. And it's funny. Like, every once in a while, my wife will be helping my daughter with her homework. And my daughter will be, you know, she, maybe she's not in the best mood and she'll like kind of snap and she'll be like, I know how to do this. You don't know how to do this. And my wife's like, oh my God, kid, <laughs> I've been doing this all day. Of course I know how to do this. Um, you know, so you, you definitely get that perspective. So when you run in the morning, what does that look like? What time are you waking up and what is, how long is a normal, you know, run segment for you from a time perspective? Well, it depends on the day, but my schedule is always the same where, Sunday is my long run and that's every anything an hour and a half at the least to three hours at the most, depending on where I am in my training cycle. And then Monday is a recovery run. So my coach is always like nine plus nine thirty plus miles. Like you can't go any faster. Um, so it's always recovery and it's usually an hour. And then Tuesday is off. I'm always off on Tuesday. Thank God I'm off today because I can't even walk. <laughs> and then Wednesdays are track or um, speed intervals. Uh, Thursday is a light recovery. So it's about an hour. And then Friday is a tempo. And then Saturday is a recovery, like a middle distance recovery. And then Sunday is my long run again. It is the same every single week. It just changes. Uh, the workouts change. Okay. So you have three quality days with one day off. Okay. And then have you always had that uh, through the, through the three quality day mix? I know some people do more of the two quality day mix and they kind of have, they kind of intermix the tempo, like and do it like within the long run. You know, we basically, but for um, CIM, my last marathon is when I really started to incorporate a tempo into that run or like a fast finish or a few marathon pace miles. I never really did that before. So it was exciting. I just kept telling my coach, he was always like time on your feet, time on your feet. Don't worry about the pace. But then I, I, uh, was seeing other people having success from like making your body feel the pace for longer of what you're going to attempt in a race. And I just kept pushing and saying, you know, I really want to start putting more, um, tempos into that. And now that's what we do and it works. And I love it. It breaks up the long run so well. It's either progressive. So it's starting at like 7.30 for the first five and 7.20 for the next five and then 7.10 for the next five and then best effort, like give it all you've got left for the last five, you know, in a 20. And I love breaking it up because it makes the long run so much fun. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, you know, doing 10 to 12 miles at a consistent pace, I think there are times where that's enjoyable, especially if you're running in like a new terrain or like a new route, you know, because you can really kind of soak it in. Yeah. But if you're running like a, a route that you've already run before, or like, you know, you have like, say, a dozen streets that you're always on, like that can definitely, you know, get fairly monotonous, that's for sure. And as you talked about, you know, monotony was one of the reasons that kind of led to burnout in the past for you. So I can see how that would be an important thing. Yes, I needed I needed to change it up. And I'm so happy I did because I'm really seeing my fa I'm the fastest I've ever been, the fastest I've ever been. And I it's crazy how you think, you know, the longer you run, the faster you'll get, or but really it's just run smarter. It's run smarter. And you've been very consistent as well, which is also a huge thing. And and you, uh, you wrote about earlier that, you know, you want this to be, I think it's your, your 15th marathon at St. George's and you're going to have like your age 40, this is going to be your <laughs> big year, best year ever. So um, I think, was it yesterday you started your, your 18 week mm -hmm. marathon block? What, what, what's in store for you? Like, what, what are you guys planning on for this buildup? Uh, like what, what are the main focuses that you're going to do this time uh, to get you ready for St. George? I think we kind of touched it already with a lot of the um, building of muscles where I'm weak. My, mm -hmm. co my coach did an assessment on me and had me do all these little exercises and he could see where I was weak. And basically my muscles around my ankles 
are so incredibly weak. Like he was trying to have me do these like exercises and I couldn't even like get to halfway to the position that he wanted me in. So he, he just assessed me and saw where I was weak and he put a plan into place where we're going to build up all these muscles and really just work on my quads and my glutes and my hips. My hips are just so locked. Um, so we're going to do a lot of that. I'm also getting physical therapy regularly, which I've never done um, I had to go to physical therapy for three months straight after St. St. George in 2005, because that course is brutal. I mean, it is, oh, I am not a downhill runner at all. I, I swear I go slower on the downhills. I actually do. If you see my splits from St. George in 2005, the last six miles are downhill. And I went seven minute pace on those where everything else was in the sixes because I was, holding back and breaking my legs, literally my IT bands were so shot after that. I couldn't swim. I couldn't do anything. I had to just go to physical therapy for three months. Um, and that's when I had qualified. Um, I improved my time, my qualification time for Boston and Boston was my next race. So I took off from, um, October when St. George is till, till January, I couldn't run a step. And then I felt recovered enough. So I had three months to get ready, three or four months to get ready for Boston. And I came back and ran a 323 there in 2006. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of the downhill. So St. George is brutal. So I know that the physical therapy that I'm going to have um, consistently now is going to help me. I'm doing that dry needling, which is, sounds really scary because it's – if any woman has ever had an epidural, it is like getting 50 mini epidurals in your butt, in your, <laughs> in your hips. It's awful. I mean, he sticks a needle in and then your whole muscle like spasms and you feel it like 50 times that he's like prodding you. But it, it loosens up all my muscles and I'm walking out of there just super healthy. So I'm going to continue to do it um, throughout the cycle and see if that helps me. Now, are you going to be doing anything from a form perspective to make sure that you're running the best possible way down those hills so you don't feel like, as you put it, like you're running with the emergency brake on? You know, I just have to practice. I live uh, in Las Vegas, and it's where I live. It's really, really flat. So most of the time, I like to just go out my front door and start running. I don't like to have to drive places and it takes more time away from my family. You know, I always run early in the morning so that I can be home before they're even awake for school. And then yeah, even the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. I always, and it, like, it, it like makes every minute count. Like every minute where you're not running after you wake up, you're like feeling it. Like, you're like, for me, it's like, I'm like anxiety ridden by the time I, like, I've left the house. <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't know if you saw my post the other day, but I literally got home from my run at 620 and everyone was still sleeping. So I like poured myself a cup of coffee and went outside with my dog and just enjoyed the birds chirping. And it's just like so nice to have a little bit of alone time and before the whole house wakes up. And so I do, I try to do that. And I know um, some of my friends have stopped running. Like I told you, I used to run with a big group of friends and there have been people that have like kind of stopped running because it kind of impacted their family life where maybe their spouse wasn't as supportive or they felt like they were, you know, raising the kids alone because they were always gone running. Um, Especially like that's why I haven't done the triathlon training. I mean, literally I'd be gone almost the entire weekend training on these long runs and long rides. So I'm just not ready for that yet. My kids are too small, but I do, I'll have to get up at three, three thirty in the morning, um, in the summer to beat the sun and to get three hour runs in. And so I'm home, I'm done by seven and the kids are just waking up. So I literally lose no time with them. And it makes me feel, it makes me feel good that I can do what I want to do and I can still be there for my family and, um, helping my husband and, you know, having that family, you know, time. So did I just go off on a tangent? <laughs> yes. And no, you, you hit all the notes. I, I appreciate it. That's for sure. And, and, you know, it gets me thinking about your, your rest days because, you know, you talked about how for you running is really important and you also have ADHD and, you know, it's also a good outlet for you in that regard. So when you have these off days, are you able to make the most of your recovery or do you feel like you just kind of like transfer your energy into a different endeavor? 
Well, when I say I take a rest day, <laughs> it's not, re- I'm not really resting. It's just, I'm not running. So yeah, I am, I'm a busy, busy body and I, and, and I like it that way. Like I was saying, um, you know, people are like, you're so lucky you're a teacher and you're off for the summer. And, and I'm like, I might be off out of, out of the classroom, but let me tell you what I'm doing this summer. You know, I'm writing my, I want to write my third book, my chill, I'm writing children's books. So I'm like starting to write my third book. I'm tutoring eight kids this summer. I am, you know, I'm training for a marathon. It's like, there's no downtime. And I like it that way. I literally cannot sit still. Yeah, you are someone who I feel like is constantly achieving things in a really remarkable way. You talked about these books, and this is not something that has come easy to you. Uh, if you wouldn't mind telling the story about um, how you uh, how how you stole the the, the the essay or stole the paper when you were when you were when you were younger, because I think this really sets the stage for what happened later in your life. Well, first, let me start with. I have um, a master's degree in special education, and so I was never diagnosed ADHD. Like, when I, you know, when you were younger, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And so I am self-diagnosing myself because of what I've learned with my special ed degree and who, you know, sits in my classroom. I can see the children who are suffering from ADHD and my own son was diagnosed with ADHD. Um, so I think it's like running in my family for sure. My daughter's pretty, uh, energetic as well. So she could possibly have it as well. But yeah, I mean, when you have that, you suffer academically, um, you can suffer academically. And I did when I was little, um, I, I just remember getting F's all it's so traumatic. Like all I remember is seeing these big fat red F's on my paper. And, um, I was so sick of getting the F's. I mean, I was probably third or fourth grade and, um, I didn't put my name on my paper one time and my, my teacher passed back all the papers and it was a writing paper, you know, a written report. And she said, two people didn't put their name on their paper. They're up on the, the board, go claim yours and get your name on it so I can give you a grade. So of course I run up to the board and there's this perfect, perfectly written paragraph paper. It's like impeccable. And then I can see obviously mine right next to it. It's just, you can't even read it. There's no paragraphing, everything's spelled wrong. And there's a giant red F on it. And the other one has a perfect A on it. And I took the A, I took it. And I said, this is mine. I wrote my name on the top and I handed it to my teacher. Yeah. Seconds later, I found myself in the hallway with her and she was telling me, like, are you sure that this is your paper? And I broke down and started crying because I knew she knew it wasn't mine. Um, I didn't realize that they could tell by the handwriting because <laughs> I was so young. And now I know, like, come on, I know this is your handwriting. I'm a teacher. I know, <laughs> you know, after a few months of seeing the handwriting, you know whose it is. And um, yeah, so I, I stole the A and I ended up getting, you know, the F that I deserved. But I do remember my teacher being very nice about it. You know, if someone's stealing something that's not theirs, like she was super nice about it. I don't remember too much after that, except for I found myself sitting in a resource room class, you know, where, you know, you can't really achieve at the level or the speed that the teacher's teaching. And so I did, I got pulled out partial uh, part of the day I had to go into uh, another room and I had teachers that really dialed in on my needs and what I was struggling with. And I don't remember too much. I swear my, my long-term memory is just so bad, but I don't remember too much. I can't even remember the names of the teachers, but um, I remember in fourth grade going into resource room and they completely changed my life. I mean, I was, um, taught study habits, study skills, and um, they just, you know, showed me in a, a way that no one else could on how to like memorize things and how to learn things. And, you know, I didn't start getting straight A's, but I started to pass, um, started to get C's and my grades started to improve. And I don't remember when I was exited from the resource room. Maybe it was junior high or junior high, maybe. Um, but I do remember, um, 
once I found running, um, when I was 13, uh, I, I actually was trying out for softball my seventh and eighth grade year. I wanted to be a softball player and I would be, uh, running around the field fastest running the bases and I could hit the ball like the boys, man, I could hit that ball. But when it came to pop flies, oh my gosh, I was so afraid it was going to bust <laughs> my teeth. So I couldn't, I would just put my glove up and put my head down and cringe and like, I'd never catch the ball. And so the coach was like, you know, we can't have you on the team because if you're not going to catch the ball, what good are you? But you are a phenomenal runner. They're like, you, I remember Mr. Flurry. He goes, you need to go out for the, tr- the cross country team. And I didn't even know what cross country was. And I said, well, what's that? And he goes, it's a running team. Like you need to go out and be a runner. And so I found out about it. I um, signed up. And I was a freshman, I was 13 years old and I started running and that just, that changed my entire life. Like it was like how I could manage my ADHD without medication. Like no one knew I was ADHD then. Like I just had so much energy and I was like everything spilling out of my head at once. I couldn't like process things the same way. And I couldn't focus on one thing fully because I was like, squirrel, you know, you're just all over the place. And so when I found running and I found teachers that really cared and to find out where my, my downfalls were, they helped me make my, my weaknesses into strengths. And yeah. And then I told my parents I wanted to go to college and they're like, Oh, you're not going to college. They're like, no, you're not going to college. They have no money to send me. And I said, you know what? I'm going to college. There will be a way. And I found my way. I took out every student loan I could. I worked three jobs and ran. And I put myself through college. And then I went on to get my master's degree right after that. And I'm the only one in my entire family to do that and it's because of those teachers that helped me believe in myself and it was running where I could channel all that energy in the positive way and I took it all away and I am so happy and proud of myself so no matter how many people say you can't do something or if you feel you don't have the means to do something you have to make you it's every decision that you make that puts you in it so I was proactive and I did everything I had to do and and I did it and now I'm here with my master's degree plus 32 credits above my degree and and I'm teaching children and I'm changing their lives like my teachers changed mine so for you this is much more than just a job Oh, it's, it's my passion. It's my life. Like people say, you know, not very many people go to work every day and absolutely love their job. Now there are some difficult, difficult days, but I would never choose any job. There's nothing else that I could ever imagine doing that's so fulfilling. And oh my gosh, my kids, they know it. I treat these kids like they're my own children and I tell them, like, I'm, I'm going to I'm here to help change your life and set you on this course. And I'm and it's only first grade. It's first grade. But I'm setting them up for such a successful future and what I do with them in the classroom. And I don't just teach them academics. I tell them my stories. I tell them how I got F's. I tell them how I went to the resource room. I have children in the resource room. They go to resource in my class and I want them to be able to connect with me. And know that I was there. I show them pictures of me when I'm small. I have my first grade picture from first grade sitting in a frame in my classroom. So they know I was that small one time and I went through things. And I tell them I'm not afraid to open up to them and tell them my stories so that they can connect and, and um, you know, believe me. And when you are working with those kids, how often do you hearken back? to your past and like what has driven you here or is it just so ingrained in you that you don't even need to go down memory lane that that often you know that's why people say like like how are you so happy you had so many struggles um how can you always be smiling and I really don't even know 
I just, I'm not going to sit here and be like, I'm like, oh, the most positive person. Cause there's definitely times where I struggle, but it is, it's so ingrained in me. It's just who I am. And I just want to be my authentic self so that those children can see that in my own children too. Absolutely. Tanya, thank you so much for coming on, on the podcast. This has been a really powerful episode and thank you for opening up about all of this because I, as, as we all heard, it, it certainly is an emotional topic for you and rightfully so, but you're certainly doing wonderful things for so many people and, and thank you for all of it. Of course. I'm so, I feel so special that you asked me to be on the show and that I could share my story. Well, it's my pleasure. Good luck. You got what? 17 weeks and six more days to St. George. So good luck with your, with your marathon buildup. We'll definitely be rooting for you and good luck with those downhills. Thank you so much. All right, Tanya, I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Tanya, thank you so much for coming on the rambling runner podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. Also, thank you to Mercury Mile for presenting, for being the presenting sponsor. I should say of this podcast each and every week. I wouldn't be able to do this without the support of Mercury Mile. So please support them as well because they're dropping the bag for the podcast. So drop the bag for them. You're going to be getting running gear anyway. You might as well get the best stuff in the world and get it from Mercury Mile. Thank you so much for listening and sharing the show. Any suggestions, you can shoot me an email, ramblingrunnerpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me at rambling underscore runner on Instagram. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.